Please turn with me now to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, where we pick up at verse 45, and we'll read through verse 54. Now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us now as we come to the end of Matthew's account of the crucifixion of our Lord. These have been difficult verses, sorrowful verses that we have been in for weeks now. And as we come to the end of it, we again pray that your Spirit would give us insight into the enormity of all that was happening in the passion of our Lord, that we might grasp it, that it might grasp us, and that we might stand in awe of you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our Lord is, is on the cross. He's been crucified at the end of a series of heartbreaking events, a series which began, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and which have concluded with him being marched out Side the gate of the city out to the place of abandonment and defilement, and he's been hung upon a cross, a symbolic tree, which according to Deuteronomy 21 was the place of God's cursing. Jesus is hanging on a tree. He's stricken, he's smitten. He's afflicted. His body is broken. He's been beaten in the high priest's palace. His flesh has been shredded by the scourging that he has received at the hands of the Roman soldiers. His body has been pierced as he's been nailed to the cross. He's been humiliated. He's been mocked by the Roman soldiers. He is being mocked by the bystanders, by those who are turning the promises of the gospel into barbed and mocking accusations, seemingly highlighting the impotence of the one whose charge hanging above his head reads the king of the Jews. 
here is Jesus hanging on the cross, hanging on a tree. At the end of the series of events that began in that Garden of Gethsemane, here is Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath. You remember how the psalmist had spoken of that cup in Psalm 75. It said there that, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with, with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's the cup that Jesus is drinking. That Psalm 75 cup that Jesus in the garden had asked his father in those pained prayers that it might pass from him if possible. That is the cup that he is now drinking, draining it down to the dregs as he bears the full extent of sin manifest upon that cross. Jesus is separated from the rest of humanity as they despise Him, as they abandon Him. All of them, even those who have stuck with Him, Matthew tells us in verse 55, are daring only to look on from a distance. He's alone on that cross. He's separated from God, His Father. His prayers in Gethsemane answered, only by a deafening silence. Our Lord is on the cross, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Last time, two weeks ago, we watched as He was brought out to this place of desolation. We watched as they hung our Lord upon His cross. We watched as He began to bear that awful fate. But now, in our passage that we're looking at this morning, Matthew, it seems, brings us in even a little closer. I think if you imagine this in, in terms of a movie, we go in from the wide panorama that gives us the whole view of Golgotha, the scene which has the criminals on either side of of Jesus, the scene that has the, the crowds, those who are standing looking at Jesus, the bystanders there, those who are simply walking by, mocking Him. Maybe Jerusalem sitting in the background as we see the King of the Jews outside of the city gate. But now, it's like Matthew zooms in, and our depth of field changes and everything else fades away. The crowd fade away. The criminals fade away. And, and Matthew would have us come in and just focus our attention just on Jesus. Now, yes, we hear the voices of the bystanders, but in this passage, it's really more of just a muffled background noise. It's, it's Jesus that Matthew would fix our attention on here. And the reason he does this is that as he's drawing all of this to a close, he wants to make sure that we don't miss the purpose of everything that he has just in slow and careful detail 
shown us, and, and we have noticed just how slowly Matthew brings us through this, haven't we? Matthew brings us fairly rapidly down from Caesarea Philippi on that road to Jerusalem, but, but here in these last 24 hours of Jesus' life, Matthew has really almost put everything into slow motion. He has made us look intently at every detail from the upper room down to the cross. And here, just one last time, he changes tacks again slightly. He zooms in. He fixes our eyes on Jesus because he doesn't just want us to know what happened to Jesus. He wants us to know why it happened to Jesus. And so he brings us in and he tells us that this is happening, this new scene is, is happening at the sixth hour, which means that Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. Mark, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus was, was nailed to his cross at the third hour of the day. That is to, to say that after his arrest in Gethsemane and his nighttime trial, if you could even call it that, in the high priest's palace, after his early morning appearance before Pilate, Jesus was taken out to Golgotha, and, and around 9 a.m., he was actually crucified. But now, now it's noon. It's the sixth hour of the day. It's the brightest part of the day. It's the time when the sun is shining its brightest, when the sun is is high in the sky, beating down on Jesus as he hangs there. But Matthew tells us, at high noon, everything suddenly goes dark. It, it must have been an incredible moment for everyone who was there. Here's the sun at its zenith, and it appears the sun just disappears. It, it must have been incredible incredibly eerie. It must have been foreboding. I don't know how, how many of you managed to go and see the eclipse that passed over South Carolina a couple of years ago, but, but if you made the trip up to be in the path of it, you know just how unsettling that, that feeling is, that here you are in the brightness of the day, and then, and then suddenly that sunlight fades into dust. And you see the birds going back to their nests, and you hear the crickets beginning to chirp, and you look at your watch, and it's, it's daytime, and it's unsettling. It must have been unsettling for everyone who was there. Even more so because this wasn't an eclipse. An eclipse lasts minutes, this remains for three hours. This wasn't just a cloud coming and hanging in front of the, the sun to make things go a little duller. This is all the appearance of the sun just disappearing and being gone for, for three hours. Darkness falling upon the land. Do you understand what Matthew is describing? This is a supernatural act. 
This is something that is outside of the normal rhythms of nature. It's almost as if the creation itself, seeing its creator upon the cross, is, is turning its face away, as if it cannot bear to, to see the sorrow of the Son of God. Luke, in his gospel, when he talks about this fading of the, the light, he, he describes it this way. He says the sunlight's failed. It's almost as if the sun just could not bear it any longer. For three hours, he is, it is watched as its maker has hung on the cross, and it can't bear it any longer, and its light fails. It's incredible, and it's meaningful. This is a solemn sign. This is a, a physical representation of the utter spiritual darkness that surrounds the crucifixion of Jesus. This physical darkness, this, this failing of the sun, it, it signifies the darkness of the sons of Israel crucifying their own long-awaited Messiah. It signifies the darkness of the creatures murdering their Creator. It signified the darkness of everything that Jesus is enduring upon the cross. Not only His physical sufferings, but, but more so even this is giving us, I think, a glimpse into that unseen spiritual agony that He is enduring. At the beginning of His public ministry, Jesus had identified Himself with sinners. There was that, that moment, you remember, when Jesus went down to receive the baptism of John, a baptism that was explicitly a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but sinless Jesus goes down to the Jordan to receive that baptism. It was the moment in which the vicarious nature of what Jesus was doing was first revealed. The angel had told Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, that he was to call his son's name Jesus, a name that, that means God saves. And he was to give him that name because Jesus would save his people from their sin. And as Jesus took John's baptism, we see at least in part that that meant that Jesus is identifying with his sinful people, that that salvation would not just be remote and external, but, but Jesus was coming to radically identify with his people, even stand in their place and save them from within. It's a theme that's repeated and reinforced throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. As Jesus entered into the suffering of those who mourned, as Jesus touched the untouchable, symbolically taking their uncleanness to Himself and imparting to them His own purity so that they might leave restored and healed. It's seen in Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the Sinners even letting a prostitute wipe his feet with her hair and her tears. Right? Throughout his ministry, it's been clear that, 
The salvation that Jesus would bring for sinners would not be one from the outside, not a distant and remote help, not like Jesus throwing us a lifeline, but, but would be a radically intimate one. It's Jesus jumping into our predicament to save us from the inside. A salvation which, as the writer to the Hebrews would put it, would mean that Jesus would go so far as to be Himself personally tempted in every way, just as we are, but yet without sin. It would mean Jesus humbling Himself even to the point of making Himself nothing in the eyes of the world, taking the form of a slave, and humbling Himself even to the point of death. This death. This cursed death on the cross. It's here, you understand, it's here that Jesus is identifying with His sinful people like He's never done before. We have received glimpses of it. We've received pictures of it. We've seen foreshadowings of it, but it's here. This is the pinnacle. This is the climax. This is the point to which everything else has been moving and prefiguring. This is the point to which everything in this gospel has been moving, not just since Gethsemane, but since His birth in, in Bethlehem. This is the moment for which Jesus was destined. And as this darkness falls on the land, as it falls on the earth, it drives home to us the enormity of all that is taking place upon that cross. God knows the weakness of His people, and so in the most vivid and dramatic way possible, this darkness comes and it illustrates for us the reality of what Jesus was, was enduring upon that cross. A suffering so great that it makes the physical suffering fade into the background. Jesus wasn't the first and He wasn't the last to be crucified. That's not the significance of what was under, He was undergoing at Calvary. The significance is in the unseen, but in this darkness, God makes it at least in part seen as the sun's light fails. In this moment, the darkness of sin, the weight of Jesus' work to redeem us from our sin is it's really embodied in this literal darkness. It is the darkest moment that the world has ever seen. From the fourth day of the creation week, the sun has hung in the sky, and it has shone its light. Even after the fall, God in His grace has commanded the sun to rise in the morning that life might be sustained. You understand the dawn is a gift of God's grace. But now that sun's light fails. It's the greatest deaths of deaths takes place on this cross. It was the great outward sign that what was happening was far more significant than just a man dying. It was the great outward sign that Jesus is at this moment cursed by God. That Deuteronomy 21, 23 has come true for Jesus 
and this hanged man is cursed by God, that curse that Jesus Himself is feeling deeply, that curse that He gives expression to in His cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? As Jesus bears this curse, as He bears this unrestrained wrath of God against our sin, the pure, righteous, holy anger of God against our sins, which at this moment have been imputed to Him, Jesus searches for words that can adequately express His pain. And He lands on these words of the 22nd Psalm, and He takes them and cries out. Well, David could never have imagined that his words would ever be used like this. As David cried to God in his own real feeling of abandonment, as he struggled with the pain of feeling that God was far from him, as he walked through the dark valley in which he felt that God had retreated from him, these words gave voice, they gave expression to his own real pain and struggle. But here these words are taken on the lips of Jesus. As he hangs on this cross as the true and greater David. And he uses these words to give expression to his true and greater pain. Not just a feeling of abandonment, but a true abandonment. David had felt stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He had felt as if God had abandoned him and left him in his suffering and his sorrow. But here, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he truly is abandoned by his Father. And these words become on the lips of Jesus words of unqualified suffering and pain and desolation. Now, we might listen to this, and we might ask ourselves, how could this ever be true? How could there ever be such division within the Trinity? How could there ever be such an abandonment of God the Son by God the Father without violence being done to the Godhead? And the answer is, we don't know. It is one of these mysteries that can only ever be described but never explained. One man put it like this, he said, there must always be mystery here. We who are finite and sinners do not understand and cannot even begin to understand how evil appears to a holy God. The prophet Habakkuk could say in his prayer, your eyes are too pure to behold evil and you cannot look on wrongdoing." And the Apostle Paul adds, He who knew no sin, He made sin for us. And again, Christ became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When we put such passages of Scripture together, it seems that the working out of salvation for sinners, in, that in the working out of salvation for sinners, the hitherto unbroken communion between the Father and the Son was mysteriously broken. It's a mystery. We do not know how this could be, but it is. 
as our sin appears before the face of this holy God embodied in Jesus as he hangs there, as Martin Luther said, as the greatest sinner the world has ever seen. The Father abandons the Son truly and actually, mysteriously, in a way that we cannot explain, but there is this profound break as Jesus is cursed by his Father. We cannot get our minds around it. We cannot comprehend the enormity of what we see here, but Matthew keeps us here. And he has us look at this, and he has us keep our eyes on Jesus. He doesn't let us turn away. He makes us stay until Jesus, with one last cry, yields up his spirit and dies upon that cross. But then, very quickly, having taken us so slowly up into the point of Jesus' death, very quickly, Matthew then suddenly takes us away from Golgotha, and he rushes us into the temple to watch as the result of Christ's sacrifice comes into effect, and that temple curtain is torn in two. And then very quickly, he takes us out into the into the graveyards to watch the tombs as they open, and then he brings us into the streets of Jerusalem to watch as the resurrected walk into that city. After all the slowness of bringing us from the upper room through Golgotha into the high priest's palace, into Pilate's palace, out to to the cross to watch Jesus as he suffers and he dies, then suddenly Matthew speeds everything up. And we are whisked away, almost jumping from Golgotha to the temple, to the tombs, into the streets. And there's a lot that's strange about what Matthew shows us. We read these final four verses, and we are just full of questions. We want to know how the curtain tore. We want to know who these resurrected people are. We want to know how long they, like Lazarus, remained alive before they died again. We want to know a timeline. We want to know when the temple curtain was torn. We want to understand if the resurrected stayed at their graves until after the resurrection of Jesus then went into the city, or how it all fits together. We, we want to try and picture this scene. We want to grasp the interplay of the earthquake and the chaos in the temple and the shattering of the rocks and the intense drama of this localized resurrection. There are so many questions, but Matthew gives us no explanation. Because while there's a lot that is confusing here, the point of these four verses is crystal clear. Having taken us so slowly and deliberately to the point of Jesus' death upon the cross, Matthew now quickly wants us to understand what it means. Matthew, with a, a rapidity, with an economy of words, he paints a, a picture for us 
so that we might leave this grasping the result of everything that we have just witnessed. What did the suffering of Christ achieve? What did his sorrows and his abandonment achieve? What was the result of his crucifixion and his cursing? It's this, Matthew says, it is that all the gospel promises have now come to their glorious fulfillment. It is this, that through the death of Christ on the cross, the way into the holiness of God is no longer obstructed for us. That, that curtain is gone, it is torn in two, and we can come into that immediate presence of God from the moment that Adam and Eve had sinned against God. In the Garden of Eden, there had been a barrier. There had been an obstruction. There had been something to prevent the intimacy of communion that Adam and Eve had enjoyed within the garden. As God sent the man and his wife out from that garden and stopped their way back in, it was the thing that was symbolized in that great hurt curtain that hung in the temple and in the tabernacle before it, that barrier that prevented access into the holy of holies, into that throne room of God, into that inner sanctum. Not even the priest could go in there. Only the high priest, and only once a year could he go in there. That curtain proclaimed the supreme holiness of God. It proclaimed the devastating truth that because of our sin, we are separated from that thrice holy God. But Matthew says, look, Look, see, see the result of the death of Jesus. See what has happened. That curtain is torn. It is ripped in two. It is destroyed. There is no sewing it back together. It is, it is gone. The barrier has fallen. The gospel is proclaimed that because of what Jesus has done on that cross, God and man and are reconciled. That because Jesus has been cut off from God, through Jesus being separated from God as He bore the curse of our sin, we now can come freely, gladly, boldly into that immediate presence of God. Slowly, Matthew's taken us through it, so we see every detail. Now quickly, he says, see what it means. See what it means that that barrier's gone. It's destroyed because of what Jesus has has done sinner, you can be reunited to God. You can enjoy fellowship with God. You can find rest and peace and satisfaction in Him. That's what this enigmatic passage is all about. It's what this resurrection proclaimed. This little localized resurrection that brings with it so many questions that Matthew doesn't answer because his point is that he wants us to see that, that in the death of Christ, death itself has now been put to death. This resurrection proclaimed the good news of the gospel that the destruction and the devastation and the death that had come into the world because of sin has now been overcome. In the greatest death that the world has ever seen, a death so horrible that even the sun has turned its face away. In that death, death itself has been put to death, and so the dead have risen from their graves. These resurrected saints coming into Jerusalem, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
coming in as a foretaste, as a symbol of the victory of Christ, rising as a demonstration that the kingdom of life has been established. There's saints rising as a foreshadowing of this kingdom of Jesus in which death shall be no more. We want to know the details. We want to know the details of the dereliction of Jesus. We want to know how the Trinity cannot be divided as the Father turns his face away and there's no explanation given. We want to know the details of how the curtain tears. We want to know the details of this resurrection, but there's no details given. Because the details don't matter. What matters is that we understand that Jesus hung on that cross as the vicarious substitute for his people. Absolutely identifying with his sinful people, bearing our sin as he hangs on that cross, bearing the curse of God against our sin, against the sin of all who would put their faith in him. And he bears it to the end. And he succeeds. And so all the gospel promises are yea and amen in him. And all the things that have been promised ever since the moment that sin and death entered into the world have now come true. And for those who put their faith in him, we can come back to God and we can be released from the grip of death. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious gospel. We thank you for this wonderful news of sins forgiven and death destroyed. Oh, Father, this is good news. It is hard news because we hate to see the cost of our sin as it is revealed on the cross, but yet at the same time, oh, how we delight in Jesus who willingly bore the cost of that sin. Oh, our Father, we love our Lord. We love you. We love this gospel. And we pray that you would teach us more and more of it, that we would just continually fall on our knees before you in a believing disbelief that you would be so good to sinners like us. Oh, Father, teach us this gospel and compel us to go and teach it to others. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.